This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. Well, this week I zoomed into Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, that's probably the only time you'll have ever heard me say that on this podcast. But while Milwaukee may be better known for Laverne and Shirley and breweries, it's also the home of Northwestern Mutual, a financial group with more than $300 billion of assets that's been operating there for 160 years. John Schlifsky, Northwestern CEO, is a proud native of Milwaukee, where he grew up helping his father with his small trucking company. After college, an MBA, and a stint at MetLife, he was recruited back to his hometown's big finance company. John has worked in all different parts of the business, so we had a wide-ranging conversation about investing, the direction of interest rates in the U.S. economy, environmental, social, and governance trends, and even demographics in Japan. We also discussed something we don't usually get to hear about on the exchange, the benefits of running a company that is owned by its own customers. As the name implies, Northwestern Mutual is ultimately beholden to its policyholders, not the stock market. Give a listen. John, it is great to to chat with you. Uh, it's rare that I get to pick up the phone and talk to someone in in the world of global finance and say hello, Milwaukee. All right. I well, mean, hello back. It's great to talk to you, and it's it's great to be called. How's that? Yeah, it's fantastic. But yeah. um, look, look, just to start, I mean, Northwestern Mutual. You are a, a real stalwart. Uh, financial institution in the great city of Milwaukee. But, uh, you know, just like everyone else, of course, you've been working out of a home office and hopefully going in every once in a while to your offices, but mm-hmm. your, your folks have done the same. I mean, just what's your, how have you spent the last year and how has that shifted the way that you guys do business and really how you, you know, the needs of your customers? Yeah, well, we, a couple things happened that, you know, um, I, I'm surprised at, and I'm surprised at how long we've been uh, in this environment. But you know, before COVID, we entered 2020 in, in really in a good shape from two things in terms of being prepared for it. By the way, we didn't know it was coming. We were just prepared, generally speaking. One is we entered the year stronger than we've ever been and more liquid than we've ever been. So we had a, a, a lot of dry powder to put to work in the markets. And that was really beneficial in late March of 2021. You know, the markets were dislocated. There were lots of great buying opportunities. I think we put about a billion and a half dollars of money to work in the stock market and the junk bond market, taking advantage of great values. Uh, so that was the investment side. But more, I think more importantly is that we had started on this, what we call a digital transformation, uh, really going back about four or five years ago. And, and the notion of creating a customer experience for our policy owners and our investment clients 
that was omnichannel, that was digital, that allowed for multiple points of contact, multiple ways to interact with the company. And of course, that all bore tremendous amount of fruit in uh, late March, early April, where we went to a completely virtual work environment. We, we were at work on March 12th, <clears throat> which was a Thursday. We're at mm -hmm. work on March 13th. During that period, the NBA canceled all their games. We met over the weekend and we never opened for business again. We went virtually over the virtual work and over the weekend. And we've been in mostly a virtual environment ever since. Um, but what, what struck me about that was the uh, way that both our employees responded to it, but more importantly, the way our customers did. And I, I, I really say we've basically taken 10 years of transformation and condensed it into about a 12 month period. So it's not just the way we engage with the clients, but the way they engage with us has really changed materially. And so when you say, what have I been doing? We've really been uh, trying to accelerate how we go to market, how we meet with our clients, how we help them get financially secure. And it's really been um, amazing how quickly people have adapted to this digital world where, you know, before they were mostly face-to-face -face meetings, now they're mostly virtual, and yet we haven't missed a beat. We had a record year from a, a sales and earnings perspective. And so it really uh, was gratifying to see that we could do all this in the midst of a pandemic and still hit some of the, the financial markets, uh, financial benchmarks we set for ourselves. So, uh, you know, I, I don't like working from home as much. I, I think I feel disconnected, but I also know that we've been able to accomplish a lot. And I'm really proud of our employees for doing that. And I mean, when you think about what you sell, I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think of, um, you know, sort of retirement or safety and security, a lot, a lot of the, the financial products that you that you focus on, essentially, like, were the kinds of things that all of a sudden, even people who hadn't thought about these, perhaps, in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, do you find that there's a flight to sort of thinking about safety, security? I mean, how has it shifted like product mix or what people come to you at, you know, the kind of questions that customers, new customers and existing ones have about what you offer? Yeah, I'd say there have been two sort of thrusts that have come out of COVID that I think are um, noteworthy as it relates to financial security, which we define as this integration of insurance products like life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance with your investment stuff. And the two thrusts would be one, I do think people are paying more attention to it. Now that you could argue, is it because they're afraid of dying or getting sick of, because of COVID? Or are they just paying more attention to it because uh, they're, they're at home and they have time? and they're dwelling on it. I don't know, but there's definitely an increased focus on the part of our both our existing customer base and our prospective customer base around this notion of wanting to engage with a company and with a financial advisor around people's uh, financial security. The other thing I would say is, is that there's the, the, the second thrust is that there's been much more, um, I don't know if interest is the right word, but in, in, in having frequent points of contact with Northwestern Mutual from our client base. So it's, it's A, they want to, they want to uh, spend more time thinking about it and B, they're talking to us more. And I think both of those things are probably related to the pandemic at some level, but it's this, it's, and, and I think, you know, if you look at investments, if you look at financial securities, two of the major headwinds are greed and uh, fear. They tend to get people to do the wrong things. I think we've seen plenty of that during COVID. 
And so th those those sort of emotions and everything that's packed around it has caused this increased need on the part of our, our client base to talk to us. And so, of course, we've been ready for it, which is great. And uh, but it but it has led to a huge uptick in more uh, product sales on the insurance side and more cash flow into our investment products on the investment side. So those are both very, very powerful trends that we're taking care of right now. Now, of course, one of the, uh, the byproducts of the financial response globally to the pandemic was, uh, you know, tons of money going into the market, but also right. extremely low interest rates, central right. banks cutting them right. to near zero or even less here in Europe. What, um, how does that make, I mean, you, you mentioned that you had a buying opportunity, of course, last March when, when the market uh, panicked, but, you know, how is, how do you, you guys are, pretty conservative. You focus a fair amount on fixed income. Uh, you know, how do you find you know, longer term or medium term investments that are going to pay out the kinds of uh, returns that people expect um, that need to, they need to retire on and the products that you have? Well, I, I would say uh, several things. First of all, we have been laser focused on low interest rates going back over more than a decade now. In, in 2009, uh, and this sounds like a little bit of a history lesson, but I spent an inordinate amount of time in Japan meeting with Japanese life insurance companies. And if you if you remember, they were at that point about 20 years into uh, a sort of stagnant economy, ultra low interest rates and uh, watching them deal with it. The, what I took away from an advice perspective is uh, low interest rates are not sort of a uh, episodic thing. They are something that happen. They stay around for a long period of time. And the survivors are the companies that uh, adapt quickly and adapt permanently to low interest rates. So we've done that as a company. I'm very proud. If you look at the stuff we've done in 2010, 2011, 2012, to get fixed costs out of our business, to get uh, costs out of our business that are um, unrelated to the, the, the scale of the market to get our business used to much slower revenue growth rates. Um, I'm very proud of that. And that's sort of given us a bit of an operating income uh, boost, if you will, to the impact of low interest rates on our financial statements. But the other thing we've done is we, we've always been fairly aggressive, frankly, from an investment perspective. So even though most life insurance companies have to hold a lot of fixed income securities, we hold a disproportionate amount of risk assets. So that would be public equities, private equities, real estate, junk bonds, private mezzanine, things like that. We have a, a fairly large portion of our holdings that are in those riskier assets. But I want to make it clear, we didn't gravitate to those because of low interest rates. We gravitated to those because we know over time they create better um, return uh, opportunities. And because we're a AAA company, because we have such a strong balance sheet, we can withstand that risk, uh, that market risk. And then you overlay the fact that we own almost no governments. We own mostly in the fixed income space, either mortgages, uh, real estate mortgages, commercial mortgages, or corporate bonds. We've sort of insulated ourselves from this notion of negative rates, um, and, and ultra low government rates. Now we're still dealing with low rates, but our portfolio yield is closer to 4% than 2% because of all the things that we've done. We're not chasing risk. We're not adding risk to the portfolio because rates are low. We're just maintaining sort of the risk rates that we've always had and enjoying the fruits of those as the markets continue to grow. And we're bullish on the economy. 
And so, you know, I, I don't think rates are going up. Our, our view is as long term that rates are going to stay low for a long period of time. But if they do go up, we'll enjoy that. But we're not positioning ourselves that we have to have that happen in order to be successful. That's interesting. What is your view? I mean, just maybe let's drill down to your view of the economy. If, if you think that the economy will be strong, but you're not too concerned about, I guess, interest rates going up means you don't, you don't as, ascribe to this view that some have out there that, uh, that whether it's a fiscal stimulus from the Biden administration, uh, the roar back to life that we all want to, uh, to uh, pursue and uh, monetary policy will lead to inflation thereby, you know, forcing the hands of central banks. You're not, that's not, you don't have that view. No, I, I'd, I'd say there's two or three core things to our view of what's going on. The first is the economy is much stronger than even people expect now. The, the, the consumer balance sheet's strong, unemployment's going down, we're getting back to normal. If you track, you know, these fun statistics like mobility, you know, based on cell phone usage and stuff, and you see how mobility is getting back almost to pre-pandemic levels, which means to me, there's a return to normal from a personal perspective. Um, uh, that, so that, that says a very strong economy to me. Then you overlay this maybe the greatest experiment that I've ever lived through. I'm 62 years old. I've seen a lot of uh, financial uh, experimentation by central banks and, and things over my career, but this is the most concerted, concentrated, um, massive global easing, all done by all the major central banks all at the same time uh, is, is just a huge experiment. Now, we don't know how it's going to end, but right now it's keeping rates low. There's unbelievable liquidity in markets. For rates to go up, they're going to have to pull that liquidity out. I've seen none of that um, happening. So maybe there's some inflation, but it's going to show up more in products like lumber, which is short, or you know, semiconductor chips or things like that. The, the notion that there's going to be a big spike in rates is hard to yeah. Grapple, grapple with because there's so much money supply out there. So you've got that. And then you've got, lastly, this third thing, which is this demographic uh, headwind that we're headwind from a higher interest rate perspective. And that is we're nearing zero worldwide population growth. And if you look at over the last 50 years, there's a high correlation to population growth and interest rates. And as population, world population growth has tended to, to tip and start to go down to zero, uh, I, you know, rates have followed it. So I think you add up this massive global stimulus with a demographic headwind. Um, and I, I, we just don't see rates going up anytime soon. And I just don't think the central banks can afford it to, to start. I mean, they might go up 40 or 50 basis points, but to see a huge spike in rates like we saw in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, I just right. don't think we're anywhere close to that right now. And so I think rates, I think people have to readjust their thinking that rates are going to stay long for a very long period of time. It's interesting. You mentioned that you spent a bit of time, whatever, 10 years ago, trying to understand the predicament of Japanese life insurers. And it's sort of, if, it's interesting. You think of, you know, that preceded, was preceded by decades or at least right. 15 years of, of deflation or right. certainly no increase in prices, but also accompanied by a flat to now negative uh, birth rate. Right. And you know, I, mean, I think we're at 120 million. If you look at some, some uh, demogra demographers' uh, estimates, we could be you know, down to 100 million in the next 20 years in Japan or even lower. Right. Right. And, and so in a sense, I suppose that must have informed 
your view to some de degree, because we are seeing that certainly in Europe. And now just this, this week, we saw um, that the U.S. economy or the U.S. population growth is, is, right. is peaked. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing the U.S. has going through it that some of these other developed countries don't is, of course, immigration. And whether it's, uh, you know, undocumented workers or legal immigration, uh, we, 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 are a, 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 uh, we are a country where people want to move and create their careers and their families and their livelihoods. And so we have, we have sort of a secret. So from a U.S. perspective, I'm less worried about zero population growth because I think at some level immigration can overcome some of the, the uh, drop in birth rates. But globally, you look at some of these developed countries and their pension plans, their social security systems, their safety net systems are really not geared towards um, zero population growth. They're, they're more geared towards you know, a pyramid where you're constantly adding layers of population that are bigger than the generation before them. And so this, is, this, this zero population growth is really a huge headwind to uh, interest rates. And on top of it, as you get to having more people who are of retirement age than are of working age, you get into a, 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 a consumption issue too, mm. which also affects demand. And so, you know, when you talk, people talk about inflation, you know, I learned what it was, was too much money chasing too few goods. But the fact of the matter is right now we have this ton, ton of, you know, unbelievable amounts of money, but there's only a very few places where there's actually shortages of anything. You know, commodity prices are up, of course, but yeah. but there's excess manufacturing capacity globally. You know, it, I, you know, obviously look at oil prices. So I, I just I just think it's very hard to see, even with a strengthening economy, much of a change in interest rates over the next, let's say, 12 to 24 months. Now, beyond that, who knows? And of course, everything is I'm saying is subject to a continual um, normal global environment without wars. You've got things going on in the China Sea. You've got things going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm, if those mm -hmm. blow up, all bets are off. But right now, I think we've got a strong economy and low rates for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Let me, can I ask you about ESG? Uh, where do, how you guys uh, view, I mean, every asset manager, of course, has, been, has had to adjust to customer uh, desires or, or questions or hopes or whatever you want to call it, pressures to, um, to, I don't know, in a sense, you know, conform to the new view about whether it's uh, sustainable uh, cl climate-based investing, social questions, which of course, you know, you were in Milwaukee, you know, you saw it uh, firsthand right. there, um, or you know, governance as well. I mean, we're, maybe just go through those, those the, the three um, letters in the acronym, and just give me the sort of Northwestern Mutual um, view and response. Uh, yeah. Environmental. Environmental, I, you know, we're, we're a pretty clean carbon oriented company. I mean, we're lucky that way in that we're not, we don't have heavy manufacturing. We're not a heavy user of natural, you know, fossil fuels to run our business. Obviously, we've got to keep the lights on and stuff, but relative to our, our revenue or our balance sheet, we're, we're a very small consumer and and we've done all sorts of things to make ourselves even more environmentally friendly our campus in downtown milwaukee has all the lead certifications it's a very green building we reuse rainwater it, we keep out sunlight uh, from a heat perspective and things like that so so i'm i'm pretty proud of uh our environmental record and i would say 
we've always been that way as a company, not so much because we've been environmental champions, but it's just, it's, to be honest with you, it's a smart way to run the business and, and, you know, and, and to consume only what you need and to not waste, uh, whether it's paper or energy or resources, that just makes sense to us. So I, I feel pretty good about our position from an environmental perspective. And if you look at what we invest in, we've never been overweighted to coal or some of these problematic carbon uh, deep industries or things like that. So I, I think from an environmental perspective, we're probably in the top quartile of companies and some of it's just luck because we're an office company and and some of it's because we've just always been uh, very conservative in the way we invest and we manage resources um but, but yeah but let's think of that so there's yet so i should probably think yeah there's there's one way which is how you run your company and and that what if, but of course as an asset manager are you you know how do you view things like the larry fink perspective on as a steward of other people's assets are you what I mean, do you have a sort of guiding philosophy when it comes to, okay, you, you may not be overweight in coal, but do you invest in coal? Or would you rather, you, when, you, when you invest in coal, you adopt an approach where you are helping management to transition or, or that kind of thing? How do you? Yeah. yeah, I would say we're more evolutionary than revolutionary. So you're not going to see us make any uh, blanket statements like we are not going to invest in the coal industry. Uh, you know, it, I, I just don't think that's a prudent way to manage our policy owners money. First of all, we have a wide range of policy owner beliefs in stuff like that, you know, and how aggressive we should be. And so we, we need to constantly be picking the middle of the road because after all, the number one thing they're looking for us uh, for is excellent investment returns, but we do evolve. So we have reduced our weightings in these areas. We have been more conscious about companies that are more environmentally friendly. We have been more conscious about uh, oil and gas and things like that and how we want to play on it. We've been more conscious about investing in green energy or in electric, uh, in the right kind of electric uh, uh, things like that. So um, infrastructure kind of investments that are environmentally friendly. So I would put us more in the evolutionary camp than the revolutionary camp. And I think it will continue to evolve. And at the end of the day, uh, I, you know, I, I, I have no problem standing up saying Northwestern Mutual is continuing to both ma maintain high investment returns that are uh, uh, what, what our policy owners and investors deserve, but at the same time being very prudent about the kind of companies we're investing in. Uh, and on the margin, managing that towards increasingly environmentally friendly portfolios. So I'm not, does that make sense? We're not, no blanket prohibitions, but let's on the margin get to where we need to get over time. Right, right. And then on, on social, I mean, how do you, well, that, I mean, let's talk about you as a, as a company. Uh, you know, Milwaukee was the scene of a real, you know, of, of, a, of a ground zero, if you will, to some degree in this question of, of criminal justice in the United States and, and racial equity. What, how do you guys play that? And as a, as an employer and as a big, as a big, you know, member of the financial scene or, or industrial right. scene. So um, it, I would say uh, it's something we're really proud of. Um, it's going to sound like I'm bragging, but since you asked, I'm going to tell you, but uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, there's three things that I would point to from a social perspective that were that were really I, I, re, I actually really think we're on top of something and in some ways 
leading uh, sort of a quiet leadership around this. Now, first of all, we started our journey around diversity and inclusion, I think 10 years ago. We went to the board with a 15-year plan and we, and we said, we, at the end of 15 years, we are going to be world-class when it comes to diversity and inclusion. First five years, it was all around the environment. How do we have a more inclusive environment? What are the things that are in our environment that are getting in the way of uh, people of color or women that don't, don't let them bring their whole, or, or the LGBTQ community that don't let them bring their whole selves to work that make them feel uncomfortable at work. And we, we worked really hard on the environment. The next five years was, okay, let's look at our mix of people and what do we need to do? Where are the weak spots in our mix? Where, where are we behind where we should be? And we've started to identify those things and, and, and work on them and set goals around that. For instance, um, if you look at people of color at our company, we're, we're okay when you look at the aggregate numbers, but when you look at senior leadership, we're behind where we need to be. So now we're setting metrics around those things and how we need to move forward uh, because ultimately, if the metrics of our employee base don't reflect the world that we're in, something's gone wrong in terms of our journey. So that's that's where we start. Then uh, we put a women's initiative in place, uh, I don't know, 18 months ago, uh, and, and are looking at uh, what we need to do specifically from a women's perspective to grow more leaders in the company, both in our home office environment the corporate environment, as well as all of our sales offices around the country. And what, we, what we've seen is that we, we, you know, we need to do specific things differently to uh, allow women to uh, achieve their full uh, ability as it relates to leaders in our company. And then the third thing is, after the George Floyd murder last fall, or excuse me, last May, um, you know, I was feeling pretty good about where we are based on what I just said, but I called about 25 20 to 25 African-American and black leaders in our company, both in our home office and our field. And those were really difficult conversations. And if I had to sum it up in one sentence, I would say the general sentiment of that, of that conversation was, John, we're better off than we were. We should be proud of it, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. And that was a little sobering to me because I, as you can tell, I'm, I'm into this stuff and I felt good about where we are. So we put in place this thing that we call the Sustained Action, a Sustained Action for Racial Equity Task Force, SARE, S-A-R-E. And the whole goal of this is to, to actually do things that change both our company and the environment that we're in and the community that we're in. So rather than giving money away, which is the easiest thing for any CEO to do, and I'm not against giving the money away, we do give money away. We really focused on financial literacy, bringing African-Americans along from a leadership perspective, uh, more uh, African-Americans and Blacks in our field office. And we have, a, a, we, have, we have a series of things that we're doing with metrics. We have annual incentive plans tied to it. We have a balanced scorecard tied to it. And we've really changed the focus of racial equity away from just this notion of inclusiveness and uh, metrics around representation to specific action items that we're doing to actually drive progress. I had a call this morning with the team that's leading it and we're putting together this, our next year's annual incentive plan metrics around this. And so it's all around this goal where at some point in the not too distant future, I wanna to get to a point where from a social justice perspective, people don't think about it. We're still at a point where there's this notion of, oh, I gotta do my DNI stuff. 
Um, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta work on this and, but nobody comes to work and says, oh, I got to work on my mentoring or, oh, I got to work on my human resource development. It's become natural for leaders to do it. We got to get to the same point from a racial justice perspective. So it's probably the biggest thrust at our company of the three ESG things, you know, E, S, and G, but it's the stuff we're most proud of. And it includes our neighborhoods and our communities and all that stuff too. Right. Let me ask just about Northwestern Mutual. I mean, by by definition, you are a mutual. Um, what is what is that structure? What what benefits or advantages do you think that brings you as uh, well as this as the leader as a CEO, but also in terms of you know the way that the company operates or the way that you're able to motivate people? Um, yeah. I mean, how to explain it a bit? Because I, I don't usually get to talk to people who run you know large mutually owned financial. Right. So we're owned by our policy owners. That's what mutual means. I'd say uh, there's two or three advantages, I think, from a leadership perspective. The first is there's absolutely no conflict whatsoever between our customers and our owners. They're one and the same person. So we're never we're never worried about, well, if we do this, that's for the customers. How would the shareholders feel about it? Or if we do this for the shareholders, are we screwing our customers? It's it's all the same. And any economic gain that we create in this enterprise is returned to our customers, our policy owners, who are the same people through our uh, dividends and uh, through our dividend mechanism. So there's, there's that notion of a single focal point that creates a level of um, uh, single-mindedness of purpose that I think is really helpful when, he, when you're running an organization. The second thing is, because we don't have a share price, we're a private company. So this is this, this second thing is true, I think, of most private companies, but it's certainly true of, of Northwestern Mutual, and that is we don't have to manage for the short term. We manage for the long term. We are um, a company that is very focused on succeeding in what we call three time horizons, now, near, and far. So we have to create results this year. We can't tell our policy owners to wait. We have to build for the, the near term, let's say the next one to three years. But we also say that we're in business for generations that aren't even born yet. So we have a sort of an intergenerational compact with our policy owners. Um, and we have to create value for people that are, that are going to be our policy owners, but aren't yet. And that, that ability to manage over long periods of time, I think, is a luxury because we, can, we don't have to worry about the correctness of our decision showing up in next quarter's results. As long as we're confident what we're doing and we know it's coming, we can get there. And then the third thing I think is this, um, this notion of a mission, and that's increasingly uh, true, but because we're owned by our policy owners and because our policy owners are better off financially when they work with us, they're more financially secure. It just creates this notion of a mission and people who work here, uh, who work here long enough will tell you that if you, if you saw our culture, it's the closest thing to a religious vocation as I've ever seen. And that is this belief that we're actually doing good in the world for, for the benefit of our clients. So I, I would say those are the three things that really come out of being a mutual. That's it. And is there any chance that that will, you'll ever go, I don't know. I mean, often I have, or in the past, I have seen banks and things that were mutual or, um, you know, housing societies in the UK that then the, the, the owners, as it were, the policyholders were excited about capitalizing on their ownership. Um, is that something that could ever happen with Northwestern Mutual? We, we would never do that unless we're forced to by either a tax re regime change or a regulatory regime change. So and this, this is what I mean by this intergenerational compact. There is 
you, you could argue that the best thing that we could do for our policy owners today is stop writing new business and just go into a runoff mode, uh, eliminate most of our expenses, and it would create or, or, go, or demutualize and convert all that value to stock that we could give to today's policy owners. Uh, I, I think that's a, uh, an argument that other companies have made. I'm not saying it's wrong, but we don't believe in that. We believe we have this intergenerational compact. So we're not just running the business for today's policy owners. We're, we're running it for generations yet to be born. And that means that we're never going to demutualize unless we're forced to by the government. Well, John, uh, thanks a lot for your time. When do, you, when do you think you'll get to... I don't know, get back to the office or get the majority of your, your people back. We're, we're, we're starting in June um, with a return to normalcy. We're going to have an opt-in program during the summer. Uh, once the fall comes, we'll go to the next iterative uh, step in that, which is more and more people being in. I don't think there's a date where we're going to say it's back to normal. I think this is a process. It, it, I think it's a process that has to unfold um, and we have to get our feet under it. But I would say you know, um, it, there'll be two or three steps in this process of getting no, to normal. It'll take probably a good nine months to a year to do that. But I'm hoping by June, I'm in the office all the time. That's my game plan. All right. Well, good luck with that. And, and good luck you. with your business. Really appreciate you spending time with us, John. Oh, more than happy to do it. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner, New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your high quality podcast cravings for the Exchange, the Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and at Twitter at Breaking Views and at Rob Wancox. Goodbye. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.